the first I when I was diagnosed with OCD, I remember going on the internet and I remember reading someone's story that someone else had these fears about HIV and that they washed their hands all the time. And I just started sobbing because I had no idea that what my issue was, was OCD. I thought it was just, you know, Carrie's personal brand of craziness. Mm -hmm. And so for all these years, I thought, you know, I was defective. I thought it was a punishment for something bad I had done. I didn't know what it was. And the first time I read that somebody else had the exact same fears that I did and that it wasn't just me. I mean, that was, that blew my mind. That was, it was so reassuring. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today, you're going to listen to the conversation that I had with Carrie Arnold. Now, Carrie is a freelance science writer. She's also written about about her experience with anorexia. And um, what's great about the way that Carrie writes is that she'll take something that's slightly sciencey, you know, a science paper, research paper, and she'll turn it into a story. You know, something relatable, something that you don't have to read each sentence three times to fully understand what it actually means. Um, but today we talk about anorexia and OCD because OCD is something that Carrie suffered with before her onset of anorexia at 18. And continue to suffer from it during the time that she had anorexia and so we talk about OCD we talk about OCD and eating disorders and then at the end we talk about ways that you can help yourself in recovery overcome the effects of both of these things here's the podcast the first thing that I asked Carrie was to tell us a little bit about herself um, so let's see. Um, I live in Virginia. I'm in my mid thirties and I've been, uh, I guess I started suffering from anorexia probably when I was 18 and went off to college. I wasn't really diagnosed until I was 21. It kind of stayed subclinical for a few years before it really gained momentum in a sense. And I, I really um, started losing a lot of weight. But um, even before that, um, when I was 12 or 13, I started showing signs of OCD um, in terms of obsessions and intrusive thoughts and compulsive behaviors like hand washing or driving my car around the block to make sure I hadn't hit anything. And anything could be people. It could also be, um, you know, ducks, squirrels, um, usually something cute and cuddly. Um, and so it was never really recognized. Um, in I, I went to great lengths to hide the OCD. So when I went off to college, no one really had any clue that there was anything lurking beneath the surface. And so once, but my but by my junior year of college, things had become pretty clinically significant. I lost um, a noticeable amount of weight and I went off to an internship that summer and completely crashed. And this was the summer of 2001. Um, 
And so then I, I went through a phase of, you know, hospitalization and then relapse and hospitalization and relapse. And that went on for probably about a year. And then I stabilized for a little bit. I was still really off the charts nuts in terms of food and eating and weight, but I was stable enough to go to grad school and, um, I kind of hung on by the skin of my teeth for a while. School was motivating to at least keep things from getting too out of control. But then I graduated and um, developed mono and basically stopped eating just because I was so exhausted that I was too tired to eat after work and too tired to pack a lunch. And so I, I really crashed. And then the cycle of hospitalization and relapse um, repeated itself. Um, again, I got a period of stability, went back to grad school. This is a recurring theme. Um, so, um, this time I'd actually found a career I really liked, which was really helpful. Um, but again, I started a job, the stress and everything kind of took the eating disorder, which was definitely still a major issue, but again, not a hospitalization level. And I, again, had a really horrible relapse where I crashed and burned. And at this point, my parents had been dealing with me for probably close to a decade at this point. Um, I was 27, no, I was 29, 28 or 29. Um, and so they'd been, you know, at this point I'd been sick for a decade and they basically put their foot down. Um, I had to quit my job because um, my I really couldn't do it. I was so anxious and so suicidal and so completely just, I couldn't focus. I wasn't eating. I was exercising all the time. And so I really had to quit before I got fired. And so this was of course, as the economy was tanking and my ability to find another job was pretty much nil. And I had to leave my apartment, and so I had no other place to, to live. And so my parents put their foot down and said, if you're going to come move home and you are more than welcome to, then, you know, you need to, we need to be included on your treatment team. Um, and in, in this sense, so it was kind of at the age of, it was shortly before my 29th birthday, um, I ended up moving back home and starting sort of a, a modified FBT. Um, and it was at this point that they realized that I had been actually quite underweight for my body size and shape. Um, that, you know, getting back even to my pre-eating disorder weight was nowhere near enough. Um, and that was the first time that anyone had, had, had recognized that, that, um, that was probably why it took so little weight loss for me to completely go over the edge. And it was, I was kind of returned to a normal healthy weight for the first time in quite a while. It probably took a year and a half for my weight to really, to really normalize. I probably gained most of the weight pretty quickly, but then it took a while for kind of things to normalize. And so by the time I was 31, I probably had a normal body weight for the first time in like 15 years or something like that. And it hasn't been easy since then. I mean, recovery has been an ongoing process. I've had several relapses since then, some of them fairly recently. 
but it hasn't been as severe as it was before having a career, having a support system that was really involved has been, I think, the key to, to my ability to, to really have any sort of meaningful recovery. Yeah, that decision to move back with your parents is huge and must have been incredibly difficult as well. It was, and I think they'd, I'd been working with a, a therapist who did DBT and FBT, and we'd kind of been skirting the issue for a while, and, you know, there was a period where it was, I was given a meal plan and, you know, kind of had to check in and I was expected to follow it, but, you know, it was still kind of my own I was still, you know, plating the food and everything. And so um, eventually my parents were, I think they knew that this was my really, my last chance at getting well. I'd been in residential treatment for months and I'd relapsed as soon as I was discharged. I did not want to go back to treatment. I did not want to go back to a hospital environment. I, I was kind of, I was just really sick of that whole approach, um, which, it, it, you know, it is helpful for some people, and there were some aspects of that treatment environment that were really helpful, but being in the group environment was also really overwhelming for me. And so I honestly also, it was, you know, hospital or home, and I'd eaten the hospital food, and my mom, frankly, is a much better cook. <laughs> the hospital food is not something to make you want to eat in, remotely. Um <laughs> So uh, it, it was it was really scary, but I think I was also really sick of it as I knew at that point I wanted to stop and I couldn't. And that was what for the first time really scared me about my disorder was that I couldn't kid around with myself that I was in charge. Um, I, I knew the eating disorder was completely in charge. And that was what terrified me more than anything. Yeah, it's it's a terrifying moment, but almost a really wonderful moment as well. I think I had a similar <laughs> thing, and it really that was the sort that was the thing that pushed to wow, I have to get rid of this. Um, yeah, and it was finding a career that I really liked was also was also helpful because it was something to really help push through that anxiety of it gave me a reason to want to do it, which I hadn't had before. And that was also really helpful um, because I knew that I couldn't have the career and the job that I wanted if I remained ill, that I, I just wouldn't have the ener the mental energy, the physical energy to, to do it. And what was that? What was um, I am actually a freelance science writer. So um, I cover all sorts of, um, I do journalism related to science and health and um, nature topics. That must be so interesting. <laughs> Just It really is. It really is. It's, I, I really enjoy what I do and I'm really lucky in that way. What's one of your favorite, you know, you say you cover science and nature and things. What's, what's your, if you... If you have a favorite sort of topic to write about or research, what would it be? I, I guess I'm torn between writing about microbiology and some of it is infectious disease. Some of it is just, you know, the beneficial microbes that live in and around us. And I also like writing about evolutionary biology. Um, so I'm glad that you mentioned um, OCD a bit um, <laughs> because... 
it's um, it's something that I know a lot of people that suffer from to eating disorders also suffer from that, and it's yeah. also yeah. It, it's not something that I really personally suffered for, and apart from when I was sick, and so yes. for me it was just uh, it, it was the it was a symptom of the starvation or malnutrition. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't something that I had before, and it wasn't it isn't really something that I suffer with now. I'm now afterwards Um, right so yeah I'd love I'd love your insight or thoughts on that and also how it complicates recovery Mm -hmm. and how on earth do you overcome that yeah I mean I guess thinking about OCD is when it started for me it was just these horrible thoughts that I could not get out of my head And at the time, it was probably in the early to mid 90s, which was really when um, people were starting to talk about HIV and AIDS, at least among, you know, white kids in the suburbs. So that was really what my first OCD fears focused on, was I was afraid that I had somehow contracted AIDS and that if I also wasn't really careful, I was going to pass it on to other people. So I would wash my hands a lot. Um, I was absolutely terrified. Like I couldn't touch anything because it might be contaminated. I couldn't, you know, there were all these rules about what I could and could not touch. And, you know, someone would cough and I'd be like, oh my God, that could be the first signs of immunodeficiency. I better, you know, I better stay away from that person. And I would work myself up into this frenzy and I'd actually like, vomit from anxiety like it wasn't intentional at all and my mom at this time ironically thought I had bulimia um, because I was throwing up a lot Um, although that really that wasn't the issue at all Um, but so and I couldn't get these thoughts out of my head and so what I began to do was wash my hands to try and reduce the anxiety and at first you just you wash your hands and you think you're done with it But then you begin to doubt, did I wash my hands enough? Did I get all of the germs off? And soon you begin to worry, well, I can't, if I touched the faucet before I started washing my hands, then I can't touch it after I've washed my hands because it's been contaminated. So soon you begin to do all of these rituals around washing your hands. And then I had to wash them multiple times and for certain amounts of time each time. Because, you know, I had to be completely sure that I got all of the germs off. And so these rituals would just keep developing. And sometimes they would recede without without really much notice. Sometimes the anxiety would be less. And I didn't feel I had to do the rituals as much. And as time went on, they, they began to change. I began to develop a lot of mental rituals like completely going over in my head like everything I might have touched to make sure like is it okay do I need to wash my hands and then I would develop rituals about you know I would when I started driving I would worry that I might have accidentally hit somebody with my car and not noticed so I would drive around the block to check or I would mentally go over in my head try to remember like every second of driving to make sure that I didn't remember any sort of bumps that that I couldn't explain you know that weren't seams in the pavement or whatever and so it takes up so much mental space 
And as I went away to college, it began to to morph in that I it sounds weird to describe, but I became very compulsive and obsessive about studying. Like I would make myself write over handwrite my notes over and over and over until I memorized it. I would make myself memorize sections of textbooks or, or drawings in the biology or chemistry textbooks, be able to, you know, kind of sketch them out by hand. Um, and I would make myself study for a certain number of hours per week. And I wouldn't let myself go to sleep until I logged all the hours for that day. And looking back, it's, it's a lot of those are very, very similar to the rituals that I had with, with anorexia in that, with the eating disorder, I was constantly counting calories and, and going over in my head everything that I had eaten for the day. Um, and I wouldn't let myself eat anything if I didn't know the exact calorie count. So, and this was before, you know, the internet was available in your pocket. So if, you know, I couldn't look it up at a restaurant or anything, um, I wouldn't go. I became really afraid of eating out because, you know, I didn't know what was in it. And you know, things like obsessively weighing yourself and constantly checking your weight, uh, all sorts of stuff. And so it's there are really are a lot of parallels. There are some differences, too, because with the OCD, it was very much something I wanted to go away. I desperately wanted it to stop. I hated it. I was miserable. Um, I didn't recognize that with the eating disorder right away. It, the weight loss was something that I thought was a great thing. It didn't necessarily bother me that I was thinking about food and weight and calories all the time. I thought it was, it was a good thing. It was a positive thing. It, it made me feel strong somehow that I could bake and look at recipes and still not eat. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was different in that sense. And it, it's hard because you really become ingrained in these routines that are so hard to break out of. Um, I became really obsessive and compulsive with, with exercise, especially as time went on. Um, and, you know, things like calisthenics and sit-ups and everything, like having to do a certain number and then having to exercise a certain amount of time and even, you know, stopping five or 10 seconds early was just unthinkable. It was completely unthinkable. Like I had to do it to the end. It was the same way, like the, the counting and the, the time for, for washing my hands. Um, and if I didn't do my rituals um, in terms of exercise or, or food or anything like that, I would just be overwhelmed by anxiety and even just, feelings of fatness. And it was a lot like feeling contaminated. If I had touched something dirty or, or germy, it was just this horrible, awful feeling. And I could feel like my skin crawling and I would do anything to make it go away. And so for the eating disorder, that would be anything from purging to exercising to, you know, Lord only knows what to just just to try and make that feeling go away yeah that's um that's interesting because until you said that last bit everything that you'd said around the 
um, routines and the anxieties if you didn't sort of count up calories and the um, activity having to do it right till the very second that all of those are absolutely exactly the same apart from that last bit um, <laughs> I never had that feeling of skin crawling or, or just that sort of ickiness um, which I'm very grateful for but um, yeah you know so it's it's interesting to me I, I wonder sort of if, if that was if, if that last bit it was more to do with the sort of interaction between your OCD that you had had prior to having an eating disorder, sort of interacting with the eating disorder anxieties. Yeah, very much. I mean, I there's certainly no reason to think that that it wouldn't be. Um, and there, I, I think that you know you were saying you've never really had OCD outside of you know, the, the strict, when you were actively struggling with the eating disorder, and there is a lot of overlap. And some researchers have kind of proposed, or they've, they've raised the idea that anorexia might be kind of on the OCD spectrum. Mm -hmm. I, I think of it sort of as like, a lot of these sort of symptoms of, of mental illness has sort of these overlapping Venn diagrams. Um, in that someone with anorexia may have less of the OCD component, someone may have more, there's mood components, there's, you know, just eating problems that where someone might not have distorted body image, there's, there's all sorts of things. And I think they kind of overlap. And so I think there is a lot of overlap between anorexia and OCD. And I think the, the, the malnutrition really makes it. I, I read an animal study and it was, they were trying to, they were looking at what they call fear-based learning in rats. And they found that rats that were food restricted or, or put on like a semi-starvation diet actually had much better fear-based learning than rats that were eating normally, which kind of makes sense because if food is scarce, chances are there's something really wrong with your environment and you should be on the lookout for something bad to happen. Right. So in that sense, I think, especially when you stop eating, it makes all those fears and the, the fear-based learning, you know, if something bad happens, you immediately, you know, attribute it to something. And, you know, it, it's things that scare you become really cemented in your mind. And I, I really do think that the malnutrition really amplifies that normal process in humans. And I think that's part of why you see and uh, why you see OCD type behaviors so much with with malnutrition. Um, with me, it was easier because the OCD symptoms had preceded the eating disorder by quite a few years. So it was pretty easy to to make the diagnosis that it was a completely separate disorder. Right. And it it does make recovery harder because I think it make people with OCD tend to really crave that routine and structure and have really a harder time breaking those the habits of the disorder and tolerating the anxiety that comes with recovery. So in that sense, I think it does kind of complicate recovery. It can also be an advantage in a way because I found like once I created routines 
that were more recovery oriented, it became a lot easier for me to maintain recovery because I had those routines and because I'm a creature of habit, having those made it a lot easier. Got yeah. Now this is interesting because um, I was actually just having a conversation with um, somebody who's a uh, sufferer right now yesterday and she, mm-hmm. um, she's out on holiday in Barcelona this week. She lives in mm-hmm. the USA and she said, she finds it so much easier when she's away on holiday to get out of her eating disorder routines. Mm-hmm. Um, it is really like she has a, a holiday from her eating disorder. I personally, I I would sort of, I was so sort of consistent and solid. Like it, my eating disorder followed me everywhere. It wasn't like a, a break in routine gave me a break from that. But obviously for some people it really does. Um, right. I think especially the, you know, your environment is filled with all sorts of cues that you're really not necessarily conscious of all the time. And for some people, I think it might be helpful that that change in environment because you're not reminded by every little thing that reminds you of your eating disorder and the behaviors you do around it. Um, I'm more like you. Um, I really tended to struggle a lot more when I was away from my my routine because it was comfortable and especially early in recovery um, because it, it would any sort of variation in the routine would really ratchet up my anxiety and so it was a lot harder for me to eat what I needed to and plus I always tended to get sick on trips so that just added an extra layer to it um, so yeah going any kind of holiday vacational trip was just a complete nightmare for me in fact I had to yeah. not do it for a, a good couple of years when I realized that it just wasn't helpful um, mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. couldn't go anywhere just wasn't. yeah <laughs> um, so I'm I'm interested in something that you you said a minute ago about how you really hated your OCD things like having to check get back in the car and check and having to sort of wash your hands and do all those things you didn't like those and you wanted to get rid Mm -hmm. of those but you didn't initially feel the same way about the things associated with your eating disorder um right and i definitely um understand what you mean there i mean initially i i really um sort of got a lot of comfort out of things like lying mm-hmm. in bed at night and recounting all the calories I had or not had that day or all the exercise I had or not had that day and going through those mental routines were actually very comforting to mm-hmm. me so I'm wondering I'm kind of wondering what the difference is there um, and whether you think it's to do with the most of us get a sort of feeling of comfort out of um, anything to do with negative energy balance or even necessarily even thinking about it at some stage yeah i don't know i mean there's i've interviewed researchers and i've asked several of them this topic and they've basically said they have absolutely no idea i I don't think anyone really knows i think some of it is that especially at first, but even as my disorder got really severe, is that I generally got very positive feedback about my weight loss. 
Um, I was even it was, you know, I was being hospitalized. I was at my lowest weight and it was it was I mean, it it was awful. I was at a really horrible physical mental state and I had people asking me for diet tips. Yeah, and it's awful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I, I I had one one person did it and my friend was there and just absolutely ripped her a new one. I don't think she ever asked anyone for diet tips ever again. <laughs> Um, it, but, um, so I think that's also kind of part of it is the OCD always felt, it just felt oddly foreign. It, I mean, I knew it was my thoughts. It wasn't anything like that, but it was very much, it was very much something that I knew I didn't want to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and With the eating disorder, it was, I guess it was a little different because in some sense at first, you know, it it started with just a desire to eat, quote unquote, eat healthy or or whatever. And, you know, maybe just lose, you know, less than five pounds was really, you know, all I kind of initially was, was hoping for. And so I don't know whether it was because I initially felt positive about the goal that when the OCD kicked in, it was sort of, well, it's positively helping me towards this goal. So it it didn't seem as negative at first. Um, I I don't know. It's I, I, I honestly, I don't know if anyone has any idea why there is that difference in in how we feel about those obsessions and compulsions. Yeah, in some respects, it would be just so much easier if if they felt foreign and they didn't feel as good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Carrie, you, um, if you could sort of give somebody who's listening that might have um, an eating disorder, but sort of really struggles with, with OCD on top of that. Um, what do you think was effective for you? Um, hmm. There were a number of things. One was, one, I guess, was I, during when I first started recovery, I took up um, knitting, <laughs> which sounds kind of silly, but there's a lot of counting in knitting, and it was something that could kind of occupy my brain and and kind of give my hands something to do, which was really helpful for kind of distracting myself after meals. And when I had urges to exercise, is it gave me something to do and it was it's very repetitive so it's very kind of OCD friendly in a sense um, but it's more it's more positive and so finding a, a hobby something like that to distract myself was really helpful and another thing was and and this took a lot of time it didn't happen overnight but developing more positive recovery oriented rituals. I mean, now I still typically plan out my meals the night before. Um, Usually, actually, I 
usually um, I'll sometimes text them to to my mom. Um, not so much before she used to in the early stages, she'd kind of give me feedback and make sure that I was eating adequately. Now, it's more of just knowing that someone expects the text kind of forces me to do it. Um, but it, planning out my meals the night before is it takes away that any anxiety that I might have in the moment. And even if I change my mind later, which I do plenty frequently, at least I have a default there in case I get busy or I get stressed or I just don't want to think about it. So I think, you know, putting those OCD traits to, to good use and trying to develop you know, rituals and, and positive behaviors around recovery that you can really use in your favor. Right. Um, it's funny that you say knitting because I actually, I took up knitting um, a little <laughs> bit in recovery just to keep, mm -hmm. same thing, because I needed to sit, okay, I needed to stop going to the gym 24 hours a day and mm -hmm. sit mm -hmm. a little bit. And then, it, but it was really difficult for me to just sit and watch something without doing something with my hands. And, yeah. Um, so I took up, I didn't keep it up, you know, but I, I did keep it up sort of for a while. And, and, you know, um, I probably wish now I kept it up a little bit longer. Um, instead now I just sit with my laptop, and <laughs> all sure. that. but it was, you know, sort of, I didn't have a laptop when I, when I was mm -hmm. at university. Um, but you know, just doing something with my hands, I found very, very useful and it did the job because it would make, it enabled me to sit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I did, I mean, I did other stuff like, I guess, arts and crafts, um, you know, things like, you know, I painted bird feeders and, you know, I got, this was even before the adult coloring book phase, um, craze, but they did actually have adult coloring books before 2016. Um, and I would get, I would get those. Um, I did, you know, like Sudoku puzzles or, um, crosswords when I was in the initial stages of refeeding. I think my parents and I watched Jeopardy during dinner yeah. because it was, you know, it was, it was fun enough to keep your mind occupied. And I was on the quiz bowl team in high school. So I guess I'm a big trivia nerd. So, um, but so we would, you know, we would do that a lot. And that was, you know, again, it just kind of helps keep your brain occupied, but it's not, overly taxing because, you know, I couldn't concentrate well enough on, you know, really good work of fiction to be able to, to puzzle through that. But, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, but just something to keep your mind occupied and keep you somewhat busy. I used to do crosswords while I was eating in recovery and mm -hmm. pretty much couldn't, couldn't really eat without one at one yeah. point. Yeah. It just had to have something there. It was, it was like a comfort blanket. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and Sudoku as well. I mean, I went through books of those puzzles. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> it just gets to a point, though, when you know how to do them so well. It's just doesn't matter what. It's just not a challenge. So, yeah, yeah, whereas, yeah. Um, crosswords, I found, were, were more sustainable as a puzzle. It's just. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is true. And, yeah. and, and jigsaw puzzles I did. Um, yeah, lots of stuff like that, I think, is is just really helpful because it's you, it, it requires enough of your attention that you can't truly obsess, but it's not so taxing that you get frustrated. Yes, yes. And I also used to do them before 
when I was trying to sleep as well before going mm-hmm. to bed mm-hmm. to stop myself from doing that. What I used to call it was my sort of daily calorie post-mortem where I yes. would go through yes. everything and recount and recount to the point I wanted to slam my head against the wall because I was so yes. sick of it and couldn't sleep. Um, so I, I found that a crossword puzzle could help me stop doing that. But, you know, it takes a discipline, though, to want to stop doing it enough to say, I want to stop doing this, so I'm going to distract myself with a crossword puzzle. Whereas for years, I, I didn't. I sort of still wanted to do it. Yeah, and that, I think, was the biggest challenge of recovery was transforming the eating disorder into something I didn't want in my life anymore. Yeah. And that was that was really hard and it it took a long time for that to truly be the case. And I mean, I could say it, I could parrot it. And certainly I had times when I could admit, you know, the eating disorder was a big pain in my ass, but it wasn't something that I could sustain over the long term. Usually something would happen and it was, you know, I knew that if I went back to restricting and over-exercise, then it was something that I could immediately use to turn down the anxiety And, um, so that was really hard to be able to say, you know, even if it will turn down the anxiety temporarily, that it will end up morphing into this horrible monster that I don't want. And so, you know, I need to cut this thing off at the pass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's, there's, it becomes a skill to actually start to recognize (laughs) when something is turning into something that's going to get obsessive, when it's stopped being the point where this is actually helpful and it's borderline on I know that if I keep going along this path this is going to be something that I have to do every day for the rest of my life at this time of day in this way and and sort of catching it before it turns into that yeah it took me it it, and that's one of those things that I think really just takes a lot of practice it's trial and error and I, I think you know learning to recognize your own your own unique signs of when, you know, when trouble might be brewing and also recognizing the signs before the signs. So you can reach out for extra support even before things become difficult. Um, You know, I completed a book length manuscript and I was talking with my therapist at the time and, you know, she was checking in with me about that last, the last few chapters, that last big push where I was working pretty long hours to meet my deadline And I said, you know, honestly, I'm going to be fine until I turn it in. And then that's when I know I'm really going to have a problem. And so we were able to immediately, actually, I planned a vacation. Um, I was far enough along in recovery that I could do vacation. And it's sort of like, I think, honestly, at that point, a a scene change is going to be really good for me, you know, partly just to celebrate and just get out of the house and, you know, just not be not feel that kind of post adrenaline rush crash. So, you know, and then I actually, I did fine. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like, it's, you know, it's just ongoing learning, isn't it? Learning Mm -hmm. sort of what at different stages as well. There's like you said, at different stages, there's different things that are going to work in early recovery, going away on a vacation probably would have not, not helped. But then when you're a little bit further along, you know yourself well enough to know, this will actually help this time or at this stage. Right. Right. And, you know, especially I was, I, I ended up as a thank you. I, I 
found a really discount price on a on a cruise. And as much as, you know, the, the buffets terrified me is, you know, I also knew that if I really started struggling, I knew my mom could basically play, go to the buffet, hand me a plate. Mm-hmm. She knew what I liked. She knew how much, you know, roughly I needed and that she could just hand me a plate if I needed to. And, you know, kind of having that as as a backup was was really helpful. Um, Carrie, I would love you to tell us a little bit about your the book that you wrote. The book is Decoding Anorexia. I started writing that book actually um, as we talk about things that we needed to fill our time. Um, the book actually started um, after my last major relapse in, it was in 2009. Um, and I'd gone to graduate school as a science writer and I started to think about and even do some writing on my blog about using my science writing skills and my journalism skills to write about eating disorders. And I was looking at the blog analytics because I'm a geek that way. And I was noticing a lot of the search terms that brought people to my blog. And I realized that what they were looking for was actually the, the, or the posts that got the most hits and the search terms that got used the most were all kind of the sciencey ones. There was one on explaining hypermetabolism. Mm-hmm. There was one on um, high cholesterol. Um, those were the two that I really remember at the time. I think there were a few others. And so I was, you know, I began to think about like, I guess, you know, this, if the, you know, and then I kind of entered the search terms in and it turned out, you know, my blog was some of the first things that popped up. And I thought, well, that's weird. I mean, my blog doesn't get anywhere near the kind of traffic that most, you know, the really popular websites like, you know, WebMD or whatever get. And so, you know, if this is the first thing that's popping up and people are really searching for this a lot, there must be some sort of need for this information. And I thought, you know, and then it kind of occurred to me that I could use my science writing background to really approach eating disorders because I stopped reading a lot of the eating disorder books. Um, You know, the memoirs were basically just triggery or they, I don't know, it, I'd lived it for so long that I really didn't want to necessarily feel the the need to read about someone else's eating disorder. But, you know, a lot of the, the more explanatory or self-help books, it was like, these were written. It sounded like a lot of them were written in the 1980s and hadn't really been updated. Mm -hmm. They didn't have any of the, the neurobiology. They didn't have any of the genetics. They didn't have any of that. And so when people would ask me for books to read and I'd be like, uh, I don't know, um, have you tried PubMed? But of course that's really not that accessible for people. It's really technical. It's boring. Um, you know, even, even for me when I'm interested in the topic, I mean, this is not, you know, a thrilling yarn, most, most research papers. Um, and so I began to think like, what if I took that approach And so I wrote up a book proposal and it took me, actually, it took me over a year to find a publisher. Um, And, you know, I finally ended up with with a contract. And so I I worked on that book for for, eh, about nine months, I think, nine, ten months um, to to write the book mostly in the evenings. And um, Decoding Anorexia was sort of the, the end result.
Yeah, and it's a wonderful end result. It's I think it you know it's it's one of those if for anybody that's not that's sort of starting it isn't really. I just think it's so much more valuable. I have to say it than the just sort of woe is me memoirs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of this is it's it's the science and the biological sort of aspects, but then also put into real life. Yeah, is I wanted it to be a story as well. I mean, even reading the the Lock and Lagrange, how to help your teenager beat an eating disorder. I mean. It has great information, but it is, it's not the easiest read. Right. Um, it's pretty dense. It's not, you know, it's not something that you're just going to pick up and breeze through. And I mean, it's really not meant to be. But, you know, also thinking about parents who are trying to help their, their sick kids and they're stressed and they're busy and even sufferers. And, and you need something. I wanted to tell something that was more of a story. And that's partly my bias as as a journalist, too, is that at the end of the day, I'm telling a story, whether it's about evolutionary biology or, or eating disorders. So it, I, I think humans respond well to stories. Mm-hmm. That's how we really learn and remember things. And so I really wanted it to, to have that sort of narrative feel. I didn't want it to be dry and boring. Oh yeah, and you know, it's taking the science and turning it into something people can relate to, um, which is um, so, you know, it's, it's needed in a lot of science, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, especially these stories, they're, and you know, like I said, there's so many eating disorder sort of memoirs, which really don't really take any science or anything helpful yeah it's, it's just all woe is me and and you know like it was i i i self-published a memoir like years ago and it apparently the publisher contacted me because we sold the few copies that we had and she's like you want to reprint it and i'm like oh god no please <laughs> just let that thing go away it's awful i like picked up a copy you know a couple months ago and i'm flipping through it and i'm just like oh my god <laughs> terrible um carrie if if people you know um if people want to read um things that you've written eating disorders or otherwise where can they find out more about you um you can find me at my website carriearnold.com and you can also check out the ed bites blog at edbites.com just edbites.com Huge thanks for Carrie for coming on, taking the time to record this podcast with me. I know it's going to be very helpful for those of you that suffer from OCD tendencies as well as eating disorders. Make sure that you check out Carrie's book, Decoding Anorexia. I'm going to link to it in the show notes to this episode. I think that some of you are going to really enjoy it. I know as adults with eating disorders, anything that sort of spreads light on the reasons behind the eating disorder and the more sort of biological stuff is really helpful for us to get our heads around that those things as well so that's the end of today's podcast Uh, a little bit of news from me hopefully no definitely by the time this recording goes out I will have handed in my notice at my full-time job and that's not because I don't like my full-time job I work as a marketer for a tech startup 
It's because I'm really busy with the eating disorder work that I'm doing. So I know that um, most of you know I'm setting up a meal support service, which is online, and I'm training meal support coaches so that people that are recovering from eating disorders and struggling to actually eat in weight restoration can get support at meal times wherever they are in the world. But I also have been doing recovery coaching, and that coaching work means a lot to me, um, and I'm thrilled about being able to spend more time and really focus on just doing this stuff. So hopefully that means there'll be more podcasts than one a week, because um, I'll have actually time to edit them properly. And hey, hopefully it means that we'll have better sounding podcasts as well, although that might not be a complete promise. <laughs> so um, thank you, and thank you everybody for the support that you've given me throughout the last year that has led me to this decision. Um, it's a big one for me, but I'm very excited for 2017. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio.